are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. If you would stand with me as I read the words of Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. It's on page 12 in our Acts booklets. It's on page 1081 in the black Bible in front of you. The word of the Lord. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and significant day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and, I, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and all of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, knowing for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Excited to dig into this passage with you. Before we jump into today's teaching, though, just to bring us up to speed on where we are in this series so far, I think we've got a wayfinding slide that just indicates that, hey, we're, we're into the second big section in Acts. You know, the first big section was the ascension, uh, or it was, yeah, the ascension there, chapter one, chapter two, now we're into the gathering of the church together. All the way through till the beginning of chapter eight, we're gonna see as, as the church is kind of beginning to form before it's then Scattered, And where we are in the narrative here in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36, we've got the, the 12, now 12 apostles and the first 120 or so of Jesus' followers all gathered. They've been waiting for the promised spirit to empower them to the mission that God has called them to, and the spirit showed up last week. We talked about it last week, but you understand that actually happened, Right. Come on, I'm trying here, guys. Anyway, man, first hour, loved that joke. They thought it was hilarious. Whatever. So the Spirit has showed up, empowered them with the skill for mission to speak languages they haven't studied in order to take the gospel, the good news about what God is doing through Jesus in the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And a crowd starts to form. You know, they're hearing these uneducated Galileans speaking in trade languages from around the world that there's no way they could have ever known. And they're like, what is going on? What does this mean? And a crowd forms, and that's where we pick it up this morning. Let's jump into Acts chapter 2, 14 through 36. We're going to mostly focus on verse 36. Well, we're going to start there and then go back to the beginning of the sermon and work our way to verse 36. So while you're turning there, I was struck as I was kind of studying this passage, realizing in my, my own sort of history as a follower of Jesus, as a young Christian, I was very confident that I had it figured out. Very confident, you know, I knew exactly how all of this worked. There are clear categories this is how God blesses these kinds of people who believe these kinds of things. And if you're over here and you believe something slightly different than the way I was taught to read the Bible, there's, I mean, I wouldn't say there's no hope for you, but if you don't know how to read the Bible like me, then like, how are you possibly getting anything else right? So, I mean, the tradition I grew up in was like Presbyterians, uh, Methodists, maybe... Catholics, heck no, right? Uh, Charismatics, let's just not even go there, right? We had it so figured out, and then I went to seminary, and I went to a seminary where there were 70 different denominations represented, and I was the only one from mine, and my mind went in a missions class when the professor started explaining the work of God throughout history and all of these different streams and forms of Christianity, all holding to orthodoxy and yet expressing it in different ways and emphasizing different things and coming to different conclusions, but all good people who followed Jesus, loved God's word, took it seriously, studied it intently, and came to different conclusions. And I went through a period of being in just theological freefall how do I even know what anything means anymore and how to believe any of this? And it was like, I can't figure out. If you've ever imagined yourself in zero gra gravity or maybe you've had one of those dreams where you wake up because you were in zero gravity in your dream and you're like flailing, nothing's happening. You can't figure out which way is up and which way is down or how to even turn yourself or anything. That's what it felt like theologically to me until people started coming alongside me and explaining, hey, let's, let's read this together. Look at this. Let's think this through. 
Peter has gone through a, a very similar experience. You can imagine the theological freefall that he went through from Thursday night when he betrayed Jesus to Friday when Jesus was killed to then Sunday when he rose again. And from that sort of spiraling in theological freefall, zero gravity, whatever, he found solid ground. And it's a journey that he's going to have to lead this first kind of congregation through if they're going to get through their own theological freefall to come to solid ground in Peter's epic conclusion to his sermon, which is in verse 36. You're already there. So you already know how the sermon ends. It's interesting, this very first sermon that's ever preached to uh, what becomes the very first church is only about... Take, took five minutes to read it, right? It's a five-minute sermon. It's gonna take me 25 minutes to explain just a little bit of it because there's so much packed in here. But we're gonna start at the end and then end at the beginning and maybe cross somewhere in the middle. So verse 36. This is how Peter concludes the whole sermon, the solid ground that he finds at the end of his theological freefall. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, of course, for us, that's not a shocking statement or a revelatory conclusion necessarily. We've heard this before, but for Peter's original hearers, this is bold. This is the kind of talk that can get you killed. This is the kind of talk that got Jesus killed. Because in this audience, this is an audience we'll, we'll read later, numbers in the thousands. In this audience are Jews from all over the world, yes, but also Jews from all over Judea and Jews from Jerusalem itself. In other words, it's highly likely there are people in this audience who were in Jerusalem seven weeks ago when Jesus was crucified. There are people listening to Peter who shouted, crucify him. There may even be Pharisees in this crowd who were part of the original plot to destroy Jesus. We don't know. And maybe I'm stretching it a little too bit in my supposition here that some of these folks may be present. Luke doesn't tell us that specifically they're there, but we do know this is happening in Jerusalem at 9 o'clock in the morning in broad daylight. They're going to find out soon enough that this is being preached. And this crowd that has gathered because of the miracle, we got to remember, uh, they're not convinced that Jesus, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Lord or the Messiah. In Greek, that's the Christ. They are not convinced that he's the Lord and the Christ. To believe that would flip their entire world upside down. Their whole understanding of how God works in the world and who God is is going to get, well, they're going to end up in free fall trying to figure out which way's up and which way's down. So if Peter's gonna lead him through that, he's got his work cut out for them. So look at verse 36 again. Uh, you'll notice that he addresses the crowd actually multiple times in the sermon at the beginning and at the beginning of this concluding statement. He addresses the crowd specifically as house of Israel, men of Israel, men of Judea, all of you in Jerusalem. In other words, we need to notice that Peter is talking exclusively to Jewish people at this point. The crowd that's gathered is from all over the world, but it consists of Jews from all over the world. And so Peter's argument is a particularly Jewish argument. 
He and the rest of the 12 apostles, they don't quite grasp yet that this is a message for the whole world. We see them come to that realization as we go through Acts, especially in like the next nine or 10 chapters or so. But even then, Peter still, he kind of preaches more than he knows in some of the Old Testament quotations that he uses. Now, as with any crowd, there are some who are gathered because they're interested in what's being said. They, they see the phenomenon, and then they start listening to the words, and they're like, this, what does this mean? And of course, there are others who are there because when a crowd, you know, a crowd attracts a crowd, right? And they're just glomming on. What's going on? What's happening here? And then there are some who are openly ridiculing and mocking everything that's happening. If you flip back to page 12 in your journal and uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and, and 13, we get this whole gamut of the people that are there. All were amazed and perplexed, uh, bewildered, some of the other words Luke uses, and, and saying to, another, what, uh, to one another, what does this mean? But, but others were mocking and saying they're filled with new wine. And this is the point where Peter then stands up with the 11, you know, with the other 11 apostles. He stands up representing them all and says, no, let me explain what's happening here. He gets their attention in verse 14 and verse 15. He says, we're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning, which in the sort of Jewish calendar or Jewish day, nine o'clock in the morning is the first, the time of the first prayer. And you didn't even eat breakfast before that. So it's ridiculous to think that you'd already be drunk when you haven't even had breakfast yet. He says, well, what's actually happening here is the pouring out of the spirit. And he appeals to the Old Testament prophet, Joel. Now, 500 or so years before this, Joel wrote a letter to uh, the Jewish nation that was in exile, to Jewish people who were living in exile, and he wrote this letter that circulated among all these different Jewish communities that said, look, God is going to bring us back from exile. He's going to invite us back into the land. He's going to restore our homeland to us. He's going to bless us. He's going to judge those who oppressed us and subjugated us, and people are going to come back to God. And at the end of all of that, Joel writes, God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh, on all people. And Peter latches onto that imagery in Joel's writings, and he says, look, guys, this shouldn't surprise you that you're seeing this because that's what Joel was talking about. What Joel talks about in chapter two, that's what you're seeing today. Because according to Joel, when the spirit is poured out, you're gonna get prophecy, we tend to think of prophecy as just predicting the future, making guesses about what's going to happen in the future and seeing if we're, we're, we're right or not. Uh, but the way that early Jews would use the word prophecy, the word we translate prophecy, it means like an authoritative explanation or proclamation of what God is doing in the world. And sometimes that includes predictions about the future, but most of the time it's just explaining, hey, I know it looks like this, but here's what God's doing. And that's what's happening here. Prophecy is happening. They are using these languages they've been given to talk about the mighty works of God, to talk about what God's doing. Peter's experiencing this and saying, this feels a lot like what Joel wrote about, where sons and daughters will prophesy, and young men will see visions, and old men will dream dreams, and even servants will prophesy. In other words, it's this communication of what God has done, and the spirit empowerment isn't limited to just one or two people for a special occasion. It's being poured out on everyone, regardless of class, regardless of gender, whether you're a servant or a master or a man or a woman or whatever, you, wherever you are, like the spirit is coming to you and the result is what they're seeing. 
Of course, Peter, he continues on to keep quoting from Joel to talk about wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below because as he goes on to explain in in verse 22, he says, look, God proved that Jesus is who he said he was by doing signs and wonders. In the last days, we're going to see the spirit of prophecy. We're going to see signs and wonders. This is This is the last days. So time is short. Now we have to remember when when we use the phrase like the last days, like, oh man, you know, with all the news today, it feels like we're really in the last days. That's sort of like a way of saying like, it feels like the end is really close. Uh, But when Peter uses the phrase the last days, that means the entire period from Jesus's ministry on earth to the very last day. So we're all in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years, Uh, which doesn't mean it's going to go on forever. It just means, I mean, it's still urgent here that that we respond, uh, as, as he says in verse 21, still quoting from Joel, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, delivered from judgment. In other words, if it really is the last days, because the spirit of prophecy is coming and we're seeing these sort of apocalyptic signs of the entire world order being turned upside down, then it's the last days and it's time to pay attention. God's doing something different and unexpected. These signs, these wonders are proof. And they were done, he says, they were done among you. You all saw them. You all know what God did through Jesus. This is proof that he is who he said he was. But you, on the other hand, crucified him. That's bad news, right? If the Messiah comes and you crucify him, that's bad news. It's like, you, you know, you get the, uh, the vial with the secret serum that's finally going to cure that incurable disease, and then somebody drops it. It's like, uh, it's, it's bad news if there's no coming back from that, but the good news continues in verse 24. Peter says, even though they crucified Jesus and are therefore guilty, all of Israel is guilty, he insinuates. Even though they're guilty, forgiveness is possible because God resurrected Jesus, resurrected the Messiah. Now, again, we're so familiar with these stories, we forget that at this time, no one saw resurrection coming. No one thought a resurrection was plausible or possible. Everybody kind of believed, yeah, there'll be a general resurrection at the end, in the last day. You remember Mary and Martha when Lazarus died, and he says, hey, if you believe, Lazarus will will rise again. He's like, well, yeah, I know he's going to rise at the end. He's like, no, there can be, there will be a, a, you know, a one-off resurrection, which is just nobody, that's just not even plausible uh, to consider as an option. And so Peter, again, he's got his work cut out for them as he's trying to explain and and help them see that, yeah, this is what actually happened. So to back it up, he's going again to Old Testament scriptures. See, God raised up Jesus because death couldn't hold him. And actually, we should have known this was coming all along because David wrote about it in Psalm 16. This is what he quotes in verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. Psalm 16 is a psalm from David's pen, a psalm that would later become really important to the early Christians as they tried to understand what God is doing in Jesus. And Peter's primary argument as he quotes this verse and then goes on to explain it is he's saying like, look, David wrote this, but David's dead. 
and buried. Like his tomb is right over there. We could all go visit it and see his bones if we wanted to. So when David wrote, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption, he's probably not talking about himself because his bones are still in the tomb. His body has seen corruption or decay, decomposition. Jewish culture was a lot more familiar with the process by which a body decayed because the burial ritual involved first burying the body and then after it had fully decomposed, going back, collecting the bones, putting them in a little container and reburying just the bones. So they had a real kind of visceral understanding of what it meant that a body would decay after somebody had, had passed away. So what Peter is arguing here is he's saying, look, David, his bones are in a box. So his body saw decay. This doesn't apply to him. This must apply to someone else. David must have written this about someone else, probably about his own great descendant, the one, the Messiah, who would follow him and sit on his throne forever. And wouldn't you know it, it's exactly what God did in Jesus didn't abandon his soul to Hades, didn't let his body see corruption or decomposition, but raised him back to life. In fact, Peter says, we're all witnesses to Jesus's resurrection. We can tell you, we saw him alive, we saw him dead, now we see him alive again. Like, it happened. And if we step back for just a moment from the sermon to try to get a picture of the logical flow of it, uh, this, you know, this argument that's culminating eventually in that statement, God has made him both Lord and Christ. We can see, you know, first Peter is, is trying to help them understand that what they're seeing, this phenomenon of speaking in other languages, it's not drunkenness. And since when did getting drunk like give you facility in another language you'd never studied, right? Obviously, it's just mocking, and they're not really serious with the charge, but that's not what's going on. This is the spirit of prophecy that is being poured out on those who are God's servants under this Messiah, Jesus, and proclaiming what God has done, and everyone in this crowd has heard the news of what happened two months ago, the rumblings about this so-called Messiah guy named Jesus who got himself crucified, and then his followers claimed he rose from the dead. Everybody knows that kind of thing doesn't happen. And yet Peter's arguing, actually, the great King David foresaw that that's exactly what would happen. And in fact, did happen in Jesus. And that brings us up in the flow of the sermon up to about verse 33 or so. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we're all witnesses. But God did more than just raise him from the dead. He raised him again and exalted him. See, before Peter can get to his final conclusion there in verse 36, first he has to explain how Jesus, the one whom they saw do the signs and wonders, the one he's claiming is Messiah, could also be the Lord, the King, the ruler. That, that word Lord is usually reserved just for Yahweh, just for God. And he's saying this one is God. So in verse 33, Peter argues that Jesus who was first resurrected by God, has now been exalted by God to God's own right hand, which in the Jewish way of thinking about God and his rulership to be at the right hand of God is to sit on the throne of the kingship of Israel. But not just of Israel, but to sit on the throne over the whole world. Just like God promised to David, 
one of his descendants is sitting on the throne. Not just ruling over Israel, but ruling over everything. And since he goes on to say Jesus has ascended into the heavens and God has exalted him, he's given him the authority to pour out the Holy Spirit on all of his followers. Full circle, back to the beginning, and that's what you're seeing today. You see how it all ties together. He says, this is unique to Jesus. One more quote from the Psalms, David again, uh, because David, as he's already pointed out, like he's dead and buried and his bones are in a box. David didn't ascend into heaven. David wasn't given the authority. Uh, He wasn't exalted to God's right hand. He wasn't given the authority to pour out the spirit, but Jesus was. David himself wrote in Psalm 110, this is verse 34 here in Acts chapter two, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter's saying, this this can't be David talking about himself because he's in a box. This is David seeing Yahweh speaking to the Messiah. I saw the Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Messiah, his descendant, the one who would sit on the throne is the same one who has been resurrected, who has been exalted, is the same one who was crucified, stamped out like a bug in the most dehumanizing way possible. And yet this is the one that God has made, has declared, has proved through his resurrection and ascension and exaltation, he is the Christ, the Lord. So remember the flow of this this whole argument. The spirit of prophecy that was predicted by Joel is being poured out on, on those who have realized that Jesus is the Messiah that God has promised. Even though that Messiah was killed, not just killed, but crucified, God raised him up. It sounds ridiculous, we know, but David predicted this was gonna happen. He saw this kind of thing coming, that the Messiah, the Christ, would have to be resurrected, and it didn't stop there. Then God exalted him, exalted this Messiah to his right hand, putting him on the throne of the world, sitting at the right hand of God. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's where the sermon stops. Unexpectedly, that's where the sermon stops. Actually, as we read all the rest of the sermons and the sort of evangelistic messages that are in the book of Acts, they don't stop like that. They all end with some sort of appeal, some sort of call. Therefore, return, repent, come, come back, turn to Jesus, something like that. But in this case, Peter's actually cut off. Verse 37, when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and they interrupted him and said to Peter and the other apostles, what do we do? They're spinning, zero gravity. Which way is up? Which way is down? Where do I put my feet? And so Peter tells them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the prophecy of Joel, the Spirit being poured out on God's servants, his followers, through Jesus, the Messiah. Now we're gonna dig into that more next week, everything that happens after the end of this sermon. But for this week, we we just kind of stop with that question, what do we do? If that's true, what do we do? And to answer that, I wanna dial in on just three words that we haven't really looked at yet in verse 36. It's those three words, know for certain. Peter wants the people of Israel to know for certain that God made Jesus, the one that they crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
he's not telling them, hey, uh, I want you to have faith. Just believe me when I say it. There was this guy, his name was Jesus. He did a bunch of miracles and stuff. He was pretty much God's son. He died, uh, he died for you, and then he rose again, and, and you should believe that. That's not what he's saying. They all know that, except for the whole coming back from the dead thing is still kind of suspicious and hard to wrap your mind around. He's talking to a crowd that already believes that God is God and that he has promised to work in the world through Israel and through Israel's Messiah. What they need to come to terms with and comes to grips with is, is this guy really the Messiah? Is he really the anointed one, the Christ that has been promised? And is he the Lord? See, what Peter wants them to know for certain is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah, not another one of the so-called messiahs that are a dime a dozen. There's always multiple messiahs floating around saying, God is working in me. I'm here to deliver all of you. And they all end up with their heads lopped off. But this messiah is the messiah and not just the Christ, not just the messiah as if that's a small thing, but he's also the Lord, the king, the ruler of all, the rightful king of the whole world ushering in his kingdom through Israel, a kingdom in which the, the poor are taken care of, the oppressed find justice, the suffering find relief, the proud are humbled, and the lowly are exalted. What Peter is saying to this group of Jews from around the world, thousands of, thousands of them gathered together, is that the entire history of the nation of Israel is coming to a point right here, right now, in Jesus, either he is the Messiah or he's not. And if what Peter is saying is true, that we're really in the last days and the time is short, there's urgency here, call on the name of the Lord if you wanna be saved. And so the application of these verses, I think to us as, as well as to Peter's first congregation is well, exactly where he goes and the verses to follow. Uh, repent, turn back to God. Call on the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Now, maybe that's, that's old news for some of you. You've been hearing that message since, you know, before you can remember, back when you were in diapers. But if you've never really wrestled with what Peter is claiming here, that this man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is not only the Messiah of Israel, but also the world's true Lord, the one to whom every single person on earth owes their allegiance, then today is the day, now is the time to really come to grips with that. Peter's sermon applies to you, applies to all of us. We can know for certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, the one who can forgive us from all the wrong that we've done and all the wrong that we just are. Because it's not enough to simply say, yeah, Jesus was a good teacher and I like the example he set for people and he had some good ideas. I think I'm gonna try to live more like that. Peter is not trying to preach to us that Jesus is Israel's great idea or the world's good example. Saying he's Israel's Messiah and the world's king, whether we acknowledge it or not. In other words, if what Peter is claiming is true, and even if what Peter's claiming is not true, you still have to make a choice. You still have to decide either 
this Jesus is the Messiah and the ruler of the world, or he's not. You can't stay neutral on the question. Peter's question is not, do you believe in Jesus? Peter's question is, is Jesus the king of the world or not? Is this Jesus the king of everything, the ruler of the world or not? And if you agree with Peter that we're in the last days and time is short and God has made this Jesus both Christ and Lord, then there's only one response, call on the name of the Lord. There's only one thing you can do to find, get your bearings in zero gravity. There's only one place to plant your feet, and it's on the name of the Lord. The only thing we can do after reading a passage like this is admit that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, and call on his name. That's all we can do. So would you stand and and pray with me? Because if you've never come to the point of acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah and the world's true Lord, the one to whom we all owe allegiance, then I'd invite you to, to do that today. And you can pray along with me something, something like this. So let's pray. God, you are a gracious God, and you have provided a way for me to come back to you. I admit that I have sinned. I have done wrong, both in the things that I've done that I I know and you know are wrong, and in the good things that I should have done that I, I didn't do. I thought being a good person was enough, but no one can ever be good enough. But mostly I confess to you that I, I don't know how to love you with my whole heart. To love you first and most as you deserve. God, I didn't even know that what I was doing was wrong until you opened my eyes to see that I haven't lived up to what you desire for those who follow you. But because I can see it now, I admit to you my sinfulness. God, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, to rescue me from my sins by dying on that cross in my place. And I believe that you raised him back to life and that you defeated death once for all in him. And I believe that you have exalted Jesus to the throne of heaven, ruling over the whole world. And I want to submit myself to Jesus's rule. So God, please forgive me in Jesus's name. I want him to be my savior, my Messiah, my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and and help me to live in this new resurrected life in the family of God and empower me to live in your kingdom and tell others what you have done. And I pray this in the name of your son who died for me. Amen. Hey, if you've prayed that, or if you were just thinking about it, but like, I'm not really sure I'm ready for that, I would love to talk about you, or talk about it with you more. Wow, that, that suddenly got dark, didn't it? I would love to talk with you more about Jesus and all of that. <laughs> and if you are already a follower of Jesus, the same call comes out to us. He is not just the Christ, 
the Messiah. He is also our Lord. We often, I think, at least I do, I fall into this idea of my relationship with God is about asking him for nice things and forgetting that I'm actually submitting to a Lord who is calling me into hard things, into taking the message of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So wherever you are, whatever you believe, wherever you are on this journey towards Jesus, you can at least know this. God has made this Jesus, the one who was crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen to that.